Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. But what does that mean? I'm here today with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good. A quote that I mentioned before this episode was from Benjamin Franklin, and that would give context to the use of liberty. It's a very used word, let's say, in our fellow United Statesians. Well, again, you know, a founder of the United States trying to define what the nation's going to be like. Mm. You know, this is a nation whose slogan for their revolution you know, it was no taxation without representation. Mm. So this was not a liberty that was demanding freedom to do absolutely anything. He was talking about a liberty that was grounded in reason and grounded in responsibility and obligation. Mm. So very interesting that he makes a comment that, you know, if you're willing to sacrifice liberty for safety, you don't deserve either. Yes. We should probably give context to, to liberty being freedom in this. Context. Yeah, I think it's easier for us to say freedom because if we were in America, maybe liberty would be the easier word. But mm. it seems in Australia we barely use the word liberty. Yeah. You know, unless we're talking about a Subaru, it's almost an unused word. <laughs> and it, it has completely lost its meaning in the Liberal Party, I think, as well. Yeah, so let's let's avoid that word because yeah, <laughs> even when we talk about the crazy people in the Senate, the Liberal Democrats, well, they're not liberal and they're not democratic. Yeah. <laughs> But they want more guns, David, so that's important. Well, that's a whole other issue. We could have a guns episode. On what kind of citizens do you have to build to make guns just fine? Well, if the uh, National Rifle Association is anything to go by. That, no, that but they don't want to make good citizens. They just want guns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Complete separate. Again, arguments. this is getting into wacky land here. People will yeah. jump to Switzerland, where one of my former students went to do a semester in Switzerland, sitting in a 4 p.m. lecture on a Tuesday afternoon, looks around, and every guy in the room's got an automatic weapon in a gun bag with him. <laughs> wow. Because it was really it was university regiment training night on the range. That's full on. So you you'd imagine because usually the Nordic, like the um, those countries, mm. are a bit more let's say, left-leaning, more progressive. Well, but this is an interesting thing. Most of the Scandinavians love hunting. Scandinavian, thank you. Yeah. Mm. Well, again, we were talking Switzerland then, so we were a bit far south. But again, well, yeah, it's, all yeah. these places love hunting. All these places love wilderness. So yeah. you, know, you can be socially progressive, but also see the use of a firearm. Mm. So we can say that for another episode because that should get all sorts of interesting <laughs> responses from the general public. Yeah, that couldn't be a bad thing. But... You know, back to what we're talking about today, this mm. thing of balancing freedom and safety. Yes. Yeah? What kind of freedom do we want? Freedom often gets defined in negative freedom or positive freedom. Have you read about that yet in your philosophical studies? Yes. So it's funny they have a balance. Yes. Mm. Um, I find the whole negative positive freedom thing, I read it and then immediately forget what it means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of those things that it makes sense when you're reading it and then it's yeah it, it seems to be an artificial anymore. distinction yeah, so okay. i think it's the freedom to and freedom from and i think they're better words to use mm. so let's use freedom to and freedom from yes that because, because it, that immediately gives you because i know I, I understand exactly what you've yes you're pointing out there mm. so you know freedom to is one thing but freedom from sets up the link to safety mm. so our spectrum here because we always end up having a spectrum because it helps to visualize things mm. or mentally represent things we have freedom from at one end 
and safety and they're connected because mm. if you have freedom from violence then you need to be safe from violence mm. and yet you need freedom to express yourself and be yourself so freedom to and freedom from mm. have to be balanced as well and this comes out in all kinds of arguments because it, it is often a compromise between the two which yeah. is where this quote is, is it's really what it's all about mm. is you know if you demand more freedom from and as a consequence lose freedoms too mm. ben franklin was not going to be a happy camper <laughs> is it worth pointing out that this is before a time of cell phones and airports i or does the quote kind of apply regardless is it one of those truisms that just carries through time regardless of the technological i'm kind of thinking of it in terms of there's a book called the Battle angels of our nature i mm. think it's stephen pinker mm-hmm. and it's about we are the nicest mellowest humans ever now Mm. we do less violence to each other and there's wonderful examples in the book like medieval europe violence wise is essentially equivalent to somalia at the time of black hawk down (laughs) that you know when they first set up the metropolitan police force in london in the early 19th century the police officers wore thick leather collars so they couldn't be garroted to death wow that in cities all over Europe, up until gas lighting, mm. you would hire someone to walk in front of you and behind you if you went out after dark and you were middle class. Mm. Because with the light, maybe you wouldn't be you know, murdered and robbed. Mm. So freedom from freedom to, yeah. I think, is less about technology than what is the societal level of safety and violence at the time you're talking about this issue. So if we go back to America in this period, it's a pretty enlightened place. People are about improvement, but you've still got a frontier where if two guys are on the frontier and they fight over who's got the claim to the mining rights, Mm -hmm. how many times did someone get shot in the head and buried? (laughs) Because who was going to find out? Mm. Who was going to do the investigation? So I think as much as we might want to think technology is a player in this, and maybe it is now, because now uh, freedom from has to include freedom from cyberbullying, freedom from electronic-based alienation. Mm. Well, it's omnipresent or so pervasive in our society. Is that the word? No. It's it's so... It's pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps what we could say is that in 13th century London, mm. someone might garrote you, kill you, steal your purse. Mm. Now, someone's going to bully you through social media and make you a shut-in. And when you figure there's 500,000 shut-ins in Japan, young males who don't yeah. live at home because they can't deal with the world, Yep. do you need to kill someone to essentially destroy them? Mm. You know, if you kill them, you have destroyed them. But you can now psychologically destroy someone mm. to the point where they feel unable to function socially so we've changed the nature of freedom from Mm. we had freedom from physical violence has now a need for freedom from psychological harm Mm. now that's an interesting okay we've got so we've ended up in such a different place already in this (laughs) than i thought we would by going which terms do we want to use because they make sense to us Mm. and what does that open up to make sense of this the precision in language often really clarifies yeah Yeah. so i'm quite sure that ben franklin well not quite sure i suppose yeah i'm 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 reasonably confident Mm. that his idea of liberty was grounded in building responsible political citizens 
who took responsibility as much as possible for their own lives, contributed to a democracy, and in doing so, the democracy didn't need to interfere with them. Mm. And he was going, well, if you don't want to be that kind of citizen, if you're willing to give up freedom twos for freedom froms, for safety, we're going to have less of a democracy. So he was linking the micro and the macro of personal activity probably defined predominantly on a political level to the nature of political society and the political system and the overall state we build. So we immediately jump more to the micro of individually our sense of physical or psychological well-being. Whereas he was trying to build a state. Essentially, what he was probably heading towards is how do we create a society that creates people who can have and want a good state and a state that lets those people be the kind of people that can function well in a democracy. So a bit of a chicken and egg. Mm, what mm. comes first, a good state slash democracy or good citizens, good people? Well, the, the good the good citizens, the, the faith in humanity kind of argument I find really interesting. I often find myself on the side of trusting the good-natured people too much in, in these kinds of moral arguments. And, you know, so, for instance, if you want any kind of context to how horrible history was, um, a good podcast to listen to for our listeners would be something like Hardcore History, which yeah, just goes fantastic. through, like, the atrocities, the gruesome... The, the awfulness of human history. Yeah, Um you only need to, you know, yeah. listen to a few of those to kind of turn you into a misanthropic kind of cynic. Um, mm. And this is where a book like Enlightenment Now, saying, you know, don't give up on the Enlightenment fundamentals, the Enlightenment ideals, they can make a better world. Yes, they can, but only if everyone invests in mm. them and everyone implements them. So what we're asking is that people have to step up. So really this question of freedom versus safety mm. is... If you stop stepping up, we'll have a less good world. Mm. That's the implication of this question, mm. which is a big thing to sort of say because what we live in more and more is states that more and more interfere for our supposed good. <laughs> so you have the interesting idea um, turned up in Obama's administration, turned up in the UK administration under David Cameron, you know, this idea that came out of behavioural economics, you know, the idea of nudging people. Don't make it difficult to do the right thing. Make the best thing the easiest thing. And the example in the beginning of the book Nudge is, you know, in a high school canteen, where do you put the fruit and the healthy food at eye level? Where do you put the lollies? The shoe level. Mm. So people don't see them. So rather than build a competent citizen who you believe in, who you say, you're capable of taking responsibility of your life. You go, no, we're going to put the best choice in front of you and diminish your ability to notice the other choices. We won't take them off the table because we don't want to diminish liberty to that extent. But we go the best choice in front. So there we have a thing of saying, you want to be this capable and safe citizen given freedom, but also living in a relatively safe world. We need you to step up so we're just going to put the best choices in front of you and hope we can normalise you to them. Mm. So to what extent can freedom be normalised? That you can learn to 
behave well and not do harm to others. I mean, usually those are things that you grow up with. So how how can you implement something like that? How can you implement freedoms? Well, how can you implement good behaviour that lead to being able to let people be free? Yeah. So what we're saying is certain behaviours are beneficial to citizens who can live in a successful democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the golden rule, uh, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. And someone's turned that upside down or turned it round and, you know, they claimed it worked the better the other way around. I wish I could remember who that was. Well, Jordan Peterson talks a little bit about Oh, he that. was the one that turned around, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Okay. I remember recently reading someone turning it the other way around, the, a variant of the golden rule. Do you remember what his variant is? Well, it was something that Jung said. So it was, and then he kind of talks a little bit about it. Okay. So it, I'm not sure it's exactly what you're saying, but what he suppose, well, what he likes is that Jung says it's that you should treat others as if they're someone that you're taking care of. Yeah, like okay, a, it's that chapter. Yeah, so that's the spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. So you challenge them and... And you don't want everyone just to be nice to yeah. them. You don't, you don't respond because there's, there's no... So there's that built-in responsibility we're talking here yeah. to build citizens. Yes. That in order to be free, you have to be competent to be free in the way we as a society would value. Mm. Yeah. No wonder it was in my head having, you know, that we'd done the, the Jordan Peterson podcast. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've read five books since I looked <laughs> at that again. But yeah, that's an interesting thing to go, you know, treat people as if, you know, they're someone that you're responsible for. Mm. And that that's how they should treat you. Is that they're being responsible kind for your well-being. Yeah, being kind isn't always the responsible or appropriate response. No. So what we're saying is to define, well, no, not what we're saying, mm-hmm. where we seem to be heading mm. is that to balance up this question of freedom versus safety, we have to be willing to determine what kind of society we want first. Because if we identify our society, what our ideal society would be like, then we know what skills citizens need to have, so how free we can let them be, mm. what freedom twos they can have, and what freedom froms they expect. Mm-hmm. So let's play the Rawlsian game. Mm-hmm. You know, let's do the veil of ignorance. Mm-hmm. We don't know who we're going to be in our society. Mm-hmm. We don't know if we're going to be men, women, old, young, rich, poor, powerful, weak. What rules do we want in our society? Mm. Well, it's a good exercise because often it, it's easy to find the positives and negatives of anything that you or any rule that you come up with. Mm. So, a, a liberty that's often talked about, I think, in our society at the moment is having the freedom to not be surveilled. Let's say when you know, just at, at, when in in the comfort of your own home. Sometimes it, people even like to extend that out into the public. I'm not sure that that necessarily applies because you've got other people watching you all the time. Well, that's the whole point. You're living in a society, in a society structure, the world you're in. So yeah. freedom to privacy mm. is a fundamental one. You mm. want the ability to some extent that makes everyone feel like they've got a space of their own. Mm-hmm. We're not being interfered with. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a fundamental, which means, you know, the poorest, weakest person needs a similar level of privacy to the richest, most powerful that's person. That's right, yeah. So we're starting with privacy. So we've immediately started with something that's social. Yes. You know, the first one you've done here is it only makes sense if you live in a society and you want that society to function. Mm-hmm. That we all know we've got somewhere we can go and be quiet and be left you know, in peace and not be 
you know, interfered with or pressured to be differently <laughs> in that environment. Mm, mm, mm. Co- coerced, even. yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, didn't want to go there, but <laughs> sorry. Yeah, that's all right because we're trying to make a nice democracy. But <laughs> you know, a nice democracy is going to have to coerce somebody to get the outcome they want. Yeah. So, all right, we want privacy. You know, we started with uh, questions of violence. Mm-hmm. So we want freedom from physical violence. Yep. We want freedom from psychological harm. Mm-hmm. Now that would need to be elaborated much further because what's harm? Someone saying you look fat today. How are we going to define harm? <laughs> Someone saying, David, why are you wearing Birkenstocks? Hippies wear Birkenstocks. You know? Here's the thing. This is These arguments fall down when it becomes a su- subjectivity. So the person... And this is why the rules in game is so good. Yeah. It's how are you going to define it generally? You know, mm. We could define harm in what diminishes psychological well-being, which can be measured. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Physical harm we can measure. Organisms need to be in this state to be healthy. Things that take them you know, a certain amount from that state means you're doing physical harm. So I actually think most of these things you can define with our initial sentence and then yep. knowledge about the entity, you know, a human being, and what helps them, you know, flourish and, and be healthy or not. Mm. Have you ever considered becoming a law writer? Um, well, this is where I was going to get next. Is uh, There's a fascinating brain scientist, and we've talked about him before, David Eagleman, mm-hmm. uh, who in his book Incognito talks, or maybe it's in his book The Brain. Oh, I read too many books. He's <laughs> um, talking about the fact that he's been asked to set up a centre that is on neuroscience and law. Mm-hmm. And the fascinating and terrifying thing he's working on and it links him with this rules and rulesian idea of you know the veil of ignorance what kind of society are we going to build when we don't know who we are mm-hmm. he's saying we should decide how criminal justice is applied on the basis well no we need to think about how criminal justice will be applied on the basis of is someone's behavior modifiable or not modifiable and if your behavior is modifiable, we should invest in rehabilitation. If your behavior is unmodifiable, we should simply warehouse you. Mm-hmm. So for people out there who've read it, probably seen it somewhere, most people agree, you know, somewhere between 1% and 2% of males and half a percent of females are born sociopaths. Mm-hmm. They don't have empathy for others. Mm-hmm. All that interests them is their own pleasure. And often what they find most pleasurable is getting what they want by doing harm to others. And no one's shown any evidence yet that you can bring a born sociopath back from the edge. Yeah. Now, there's all sorts of interesting stuff from a British psychologist or psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. uh, First name, can't remember. Second name, Dutton. To Dr. Dutton. Yeah, he'd be a doctor. He'd bound to be by now. But he's done a wonderful book with Andy McNabb called The Good Psychopath. Wow, okay. And so is this changing that conception? Uh, what it means is it's very powerful. He says, you know, there are people out there who don't really have empathy. They don't feel the need. But they're also smart enough to realize they like living in the world. They like being free. Mm. That they can play the game inside the world and win without doing harm and win on a big scale. So Andy McNabb is an ex-British SAS soldier, became a famous author, First book was a book called Bravo Two Zero, uh, which was about going into Iraq in 1991, being captured, being tortured, recovering. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy in the book with Kevin Dutton. I'm so happy I finally remembered. Thank <laughs> you, Brain. <laughs> brain, pre- please never slow down. <laughs> uh, in a Good Psychopath, 
talks about the fact that you know he went into big army and they were revving you know people up for violence because most people aren't capable of violence what andy already knew is he had no problem with violence mm. <laughs> he'd been in street gangs violence was no problem didn't even make him blink then he gets to special forces and they go, we need you to be able to do violence and then calm the hell down and behave because we only want violence when it gets the right outcomes. Mm. We only want violence when it achieves the mission. It's a the control. mission's over. Mm. And he's like, awesome. That's actually what I am. So he found a world that would let him kill people because it served the public good, mm-hmm. let him do gratuitous violence, also be highly regarded as an overachieving member of the SAS. But, you know, the fascinating thing with Andy McNabb, when he left the military, after being, you know, tortured in Iraq and recovering and realising, really going back to the job of shooting people after all that, had kind of, well, psychopaths get bored. Uh-huh. You know, he left and went, well, that first book went well. I'll become an author. I'll own multiple businesses. Now, he's a multi-multi-multi-millionaire from being an author and a businessman because he's worked out because he doesn't stress, because he doesn't worry because he doesn't get disrupted by empathy. He can play almost every situation for the win and has recognised the value of staying inside the social norms of do not physically or psychologically harm other people. Mm. So if we were saying in our society some people's behaviour is not modifiable because they can't modify it, we can't modify it, fine. But what you get is as people who, despite being different, and Andy is definitely different, <laughs> and the wonderful example of different in the book is Kevin Dutton sticks him in some sort of brain scan and shows him the most horrific images he can find. Mm-hmm. And Kevin's been showing them to you know, normal people, mm-hmm. non-psychopaths, <laughs> and they just their brain just starts freaking out. You know, it's yeah. just violent images, horrible white noise, loud noise, just terrible stuff. Most people's brains just go into everything lights up. The brain's not coping. No part of the brain likes it. It just wants to escape. Mm. Andy's brain stays dead calm. Wow. Then the pretty blonde lab assistant pokes her head around the corner and asks Andy if he wants a coffee. So between the biological thing of attractive young woman in her 20s and a coffee, his brain <laughs> lights up completely. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the most beautiful contrast. Mm. So Andy's brain is lighting up for all the different reasons. But his behaviour is modifiable because he has the discipline to modify it. Well, it's also the right setting, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's, it's the right environment. You've yeah. got to put it in the context of mm. yeah, where he is because but, you know, the gratuitous violence and the, and the acceptance of, mm. or the uh, proclivity toward those things that mm. he enjoys or is calm toward mm. um, are not necessarily good in a normal social setting no, in but a suburban life. What Kevin Dutton's found, and it's fascinating, is how many top-flight surgeons, top-flight lawyers, top-flight financial advisors are sociopaths. Really? But have recognised the same thing. Yeah. He said, look, sociopathy in a lot of ways is having every knob turned up to 11. Okay. For capacity, talent, discipline. You know, but your empathy's turned right down. Mm. And he says the difference is somewhere one of these knobs is set at a level that says, I may not actually feel empathy for many people, but I can see the value of a society that doesn't let people do harm to each other. Not that I want to say, okay, I don't want this, I don't want conclusions to be drawn from what I'm asking, but is is sociopathy somewhere on an autism spectrum? Because it sounds a little bit like that, that you have certain kind of uh, I've never seen any literature suggesting they're close and mm-hmm. part of the reason is because 
autistic people struggle with the world. Mm. Sociopaths yeah, okay. thrive in the world and tend to get what they want. But they, do, they sound a little bit like you know they excel in some areas and, and don't in others, in others, which is the and, empathy. And that might be the only commonality. Yeah. But yeah, we, we don't want anyone out there you know, I'm think, not saying that no. autistic people are sociopaths. No, we don't want anyone going that this is a spectrum because <laughs> there's enough other stuff going. But my reason for going here is, again, this all started coming out of Rawls's veil of ignorance. Mm. What kind of society you want to be in? Now, modifiability of behavior means society can build the individual or reshape the individual mm -hmm. or the individual can take responsibility. And I would guess, see, this has been a long path back to Ben Franklin. It's been a very roundy path. <laughs> um, is that... I think what Ben Franklin wanted was citizens who more than anything could make themselves fit well in a society that respected freedom from and therefore didn't have to put many limitations on freedom to. Yeah. So that safety was not a consequence of limiting people. Safety was a consequence of people choosing to and being socialized to good social behaviors how's, so how's that sound as a proposition it sounds idyllic but it sounds where he was possibly perfect. heading yeah and this was so. a hardcore enlightenment dude mm. he was heading to this super idealistic world and having read enlightenment now a few months ago for your last semester's course i find myself in enlightenment now going the ideas are awesome but where's your discipline to implement them <laughs> so we come back to this thing how many humans are going to be disciplined enough to have all the freedoms to and respect the freedoms from for others? Discipline in itself is a freedom. Precisely. You're free from your own whims. The, the more discipline you get, the more free time you have and the healthier you are. Mm, that's true. It, it's multifaceted. But what you're relying on for that to work is that people are, in fact, yeah, disciplined and comply with... Mm comply with freedom froms without having laws in place or let's say official consequences mm. um, that they can see it, it's, it becomes a little bit of like a tragedy of commons mm. there's only so much goodwill in the world and if you take advantage of that then not, it, there's not enough for everyone if mm. that kind of applies yeah. oh I think it makes sense so it really is this thing we've been talking about until you know what you want your society to be yeah. you can't answer this question of freedom and safety mm. because you don't know what kind of society you want. So, okay, let's take you know, China today. Under the CCP, mm -hmm. the judiciary is controlled by the CCP. There is no independent judiciary. You know, okay, we have a legal system that periodically delivers justice. Mm -hmm. The Chinese have a political system that does as it pleases in terms of justice. It determines it because it's, it's just another part of the political process. So mm. that is the nature of the society that the CCP has chosen to implement in China. So that changes all the rules of freedom from and freedom to and safety again because they're decisions of a political elite and will be imposed on you and you will be expected to learn them. So the whole new social credit system in China, this idea you get points for being good and lose points for being bad, <laughs> is defined politically, not in Rawlsian terms. Mm. You know, the elite who are defining it know who they are <laughs> and they know what they want to achieve. Yeah. So the society you get is going to alter all your settings. Well, the society you want and have is going to alter all your settings for freedom and safety.
And Ben Franklin's comment appeals to me so much because of my sense of enlightenment ideals, but also my recognition of a willingness to be disciplined and a willingness to discipline other people to modify their behavior, to make them good citizens, to live in a stable democracy where justice comes from an independent judiciary. I I know what my ideal world is, and Australia isn't it, but it's closer to it than 90% of the countries on earth. So I can work with this. (laughs) Again, I think I've said it before in a podcast. I certainly said it in class. I like going into class occasionally and going, all right, who's been window shopping today? Mm-hmm. And you initially get silence, then you get a bit of a giggle. I go, what did you see? And then someone says, cool pair of shoes. Yeah. I'm like, all right, did you have your brick with you? And then there's silence. I'm like, did you have your brick with you? <laughs> so I'm like, Why would I have a brick? Well, you like the shoes. Why don't you put the brick through the window and take the shoes? Mm. Well, I'd end up arrested. Mm. All right, so that's why you didn't do it. I go, well, is that the real reason you didn't do it? I go, no, it's wrong. Ah, you've internalized the rules of our society. Well done you. <laughs> you don't take your brick and you don't need to be arrested. You've been normalized. So freedom in a social context is always going to be defined by the nature of the normalization of the society. So this is what this is what is so hard about changing those rules is because it's it's habitualized, it's normalized, it's yes. something that is you're kind of brought up with and so changing those rules yeah it kind of puts people at puts their perception of their life their place in society at threat it yeah i I think that's possibly the best way that i can describe that people are feeling threatened let's say by what their their conceptualization of how they fit into the society well let's expand or try and elaborate on threat sure if you've been socialized and you've become normalized Mm -hmm. and you just do what's necessary Do you think about limitations? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Do you think about freedom? Probably not. So there's no sense of threat to your world. You Mm. just live in the world as you know it. Mm. But the minute you start questioning, what should I be free to do? Yeah. What should I be free from? You realize you don't know how the world works and that it works precariously by the creation and maintenance of social norms and some sort of justice system Mm. and some sort of political system and that the enormity and time scope of them is all so far beyond individual experience. And you go, I am at sea in the middle of this. Hey, is it going all right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe I should go back to not thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but if you stop thinking, how are you going to socialize or normalize the next kid, mm. the next new person? So we actually need normalized people to make sure that all the new kids and the new migrants get normalized to what we call the basic standards of our civilized society. Mm -hmm. I just put in a big scary term there, Mm -hmm. civilized society. We can argue what that means forever too. (laughs) Because what a civilized society really is is the one in which we've balanced freedom to and freedom from Mm. in a way that society is maybe not happy with, but at least accepting of and knows how to condition for. Mm. It's becomes a really emotive thing when you don't necessarily understand how your society works if 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 you fail to understand then it, it stops being a rational thought process and becomes quite emotive mm, you're yeah. taking away my freedom <laughs> we didn't exercise it ever yeah <laughs> and now you want to 
You want to go and bang a seal on the head? I mean the fluffy kind, not a big, tall American dude. Mm. Or you want to go and eat a penguin? No. <laughs> we have rules on that. I think that there's, there's a lot of it that's really theoretical. Uh, yeah, we, like I th- Again, I don't I want to take the conversation to guns, but just to illustrate my point that we talk about when we talk about freedom to bear arms or right to bear arms, it's about the ability to, to, to rise up against the government or uh, authority, let's say, that um, perhaps well, has gone corrupt. And so yeah. that's a really theoretical argument. Yeah, but also we could spin that in a more sophisticated way sure. than the NRA does and say, <laughs> because we behave, why can't we have a tool that allows us to be involved in Olympic sport Mm. or hunt our own food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would much rather turn it into that because that then becomes a meaningful question rather than a pissing contest between the two sides (laughs) in the gun debate. If people are responsible, why wouldn't we let them have things they could use for elite sport or getting food? But that in the two ways then defines what kind of firearms. So again, we're building our society. Mm. If we want people to be involved in elite sport, well, what do they need for that? If we want people to get their own food, what do they need for that? Well, that's two categories. Do they need a military assault rifle for elite <laughs> sport or to get food? No. 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 So that suddenly is in a category we would have to think about differently. Mm. But, and I'll use an example again from being a farm boy, a pump-action shotgun, which allows you to you know, practice shooting clays to get used to shooting you know, at elite level for clay shooting, mm-hmm. also to you know, shoot pigeons eating your peas in your garden, yeah. allows you to you know, shoot a duck to eat it, suddenly not much of a problem. Now, mm. can it be misused? Yes, but that's a question about a person's behaviour. Guns don't kill people. People, people kill, kill people. people. <laughs> Precisely. Now, some guns make it easy for idiots to kill people. Yeah, yeah. So, again, all these things are always spectrums, but let's get it down to the nature of the society we want to live in. Do we want to remove freedoms too just because it makes us feel safe? You know, the reality is in the UK where there's been a a huge push uh, against pocket knives, Mm. gang members gut each other with paint scrapers Mm. because they have a sharp edge. The solution to those problems is not about taking the tools away, but it's changing the behaviour of exactly, your citizens. Exactly, exactly. They need to understand what they have freedom to and what others have freedom from. And if they won't modify their behaviour, then we try and then we get back to David Eagleman's thing of if your behaviour is not modifiable by us helping you and you are not able to help yourself, then we warehouse you. Mm. Now that is a scary thought <laughs> because you know Eagleman... I'm not sure how convinced he is, but he sounds reasonably convinced that we will get to the point of being able to assess human beings effectively enough to determine if they are modifiable. Mm. Well, it's a good motivation though, isn't it? I mean, if you are threatened, let's say, by being warehoused because Mm. you can't modify your behavior, I'm pretty sure you're going to be determined to modify your behavior. That should be a better motivator because it's not about, you know, you did enough crime for us to pay attention to you. Mm. Or you're disruptive enough, we need to explain the consequences of this. That behavior leads here. (laughs) That we may determine you are unmodifiable. Now, this sounds very dystopian. Yeah. But let's use a practical example. You know, the UK, if someone goes to jail for murder, if they get parole for it, it's called being out on license. Mm -hmm. You get one thing wrong, you're back in jail. Mm Mm-hmm. 
what they find is murderers who it's the only thing on their criminal record. It's one moment of extreme rage, passion, frustration. When they're let out on license after however many years they serve as their minimum, most of them never go back to jail for anything. Wow. So what we have to realize is you can do an extreme thing, but that is not typical of your mm. your neurology and your psychological mm. state. It can be a moment of extreme and that you are highly modifiable to recognize, I don't want to go there again. I won't let myself go there again. Mm. So that raises all sorts of interesting questions. You know, the idea in America that, well, people can get the death penalty for murder. Well, what good status the person's modifiable? At the same token, there's huge amounts of literature that most serial rapists are unmodifiable, mm. that you will never break them of the endorphin rush that comes from the power of brutalizing another human plus climax, that that is so neurologically addictive that if that's their happy place, they are unalterable. Mm. So who potentially in a world where we're interested in the modifiable of citizens do we want to try and help? The modifiable murderer who had one terrible day or the serial rapist who is happily addicted to violence? Mm. We have such huge questions that come from freedom from freedom too. An audience, feel free to write lots of weird and even angry comments. We've really gone <laughs> off the reservation today to try and get to the heart of this. Mm. But I think we have to to see why this question of freedom versus safety never goes away. Mm. And that any thoughtful citizen you know, in the dark at 2am is going to think about it at least a few times in their life. And that powerful states people like Ben Franklin are going to say their belief boiled down with absolute conviction. I think this question is often, it's yeah very politicized. It, it comes with labels like liberal or each political faction, let's say, More has their own. progressive or conservative. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. conservative, things like that. So it's often very politicized and often put in the context of this is how much freedom I think we should have. But mm. if you put it into the context of what society should we have, yeah. you get a lots of variations or slight variations of the same kind of thing, which is I think if we look at a global setting, what you kind of get because mm. the liberties between us and say somewhere like Japan or um, the US or the UK or you know, let's any most countries – are broadly pretty similar with slight variations here and there mm. because it comes down to the conceptualization of what mm. do you want the society to Even be. Even though the societies have different cultures, yeah. they've reached similar conclusions on freedom from and freedom to, mm. Mm. to build a good society. And the individual lives as they live and will be you know, uh, managed if need be if they can't meet those standards. But... The individual is only a part of the society. So mm. this you know, is a potentially good question for another podcast is what is the, what is the role of the individual? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be one and how far does it extend? But I think that, that could be very easily be another day. But I think we're, I feel we're pretty close to the end of something we started without really knowing where we were going to go, <laughs> which is actually I like the way we do the podcast this way. Mm. If we scripted it, people would believe – they wanted that outcome. Well, we mm. didn't know what outcome we were going to get today. <laughs> Tim and I just thought that quote was awesome yes. and wanted to unpack it. And we genuinely had no idea 
where that was going to lead. The fact I've managed to get to Kevin Dutton, you know, <laughs> serial rapists, um, you know, and Andy McNabb in what? Now those two things aren't linked. Mm. And to be, and we started, we came to this quote off a conversation that we had about um, convenience and use of phones. And yeah. we've not even, we've barely we've not even about touched that. on it. Again, you started with the electronic thing early on I as did. a way to get into privacy. Yeah. And we moved from privacy to roles. Mm. And then we went on the holy, <laughs> holy bleep, how big can this get? Yeah. Tour de force of mayhem. <laughs> that I think it ends in something like if you can talk with certainty about freedom from and freedom to or freedom and safety use whichever combination you like what that means is you have a fair sense of the society you want to live in Hmm. and that a good place to start when you have a discussion with other people about these issues is to first discuss what kind of society they want to live in Hmm. because if there's a continuity in the kind of society then there can probably be an accommodation found between freedom to and freedom from, freedom and safety. But until you determine, are we talking about the same or a similar society, you're just arguing over ideas so big, powerful mm-hmm. and emotive that all you're going to get in is into well, the screaming matches that characterize so much of politics and <laughs> philosophical podcasts. Do you think on par this is a more practical assessment, mm. that we live in societies or let's say, let's specify it. Do you think in Australia that we are in a society that trusts its citizens enough? To, oh, for yeah, and the trust safety? is a whole other awesome question. I, my fear is that, because I don't have any evidence, I only have anecdote, mm-hmm. is that we are trusting society and others less mm-hmm. and as a consequence we will give up freedom twos mm-hmm. for freedom froms yeah. rather than just work out how to help people become more competent citizens who can be free because we trust them. And I would much rather let someone be free because I can trust them than try and limit their behavior. Another way to conceptualize this argument, I think, just I remembered, well, thought was thinking of this while you were just talking just then, is... We often have discussions like this when we talk about rights. Mm. Um, A conversation that's happening on the intellectual dark web, as it is called, Mm. is instead of talking about rights, what can we talk about in terms of responsibilities? And that seems like a similar... uh, Here in Australia, I can't remember when it was. It was maybe about 2006 or seven. Former Liberal Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser came out when there was a debate about should Australia have a Bill of Rights? He said, only if it also has a bill of obligations. Absolutely. And I'm like, yeah, because any citizen has their freedom from and freedom to worlds balanced. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And we could always come back to this question of a bill of rights and a bill of obligations. We could try and build one one day. Mm. We'll do do the Rawlsian thing as a podcast one day Mm -hmm. and actually try and come up with our set Mm. of our Bill of Rights and our Bill of Obligations going, if you know, Tim and David could build a society in which two <laughs> different people could go, okay, we're both curbing our lives a little, but we're getting a heap of things we like and see what other people think of what we And it's get. a good thought experiment. If we set the example, then people can try and do this in their own heads and yeah. I think it would really reframe the conversation. And then we could get everyone to send in some of their 
you know, their rights and obligations and we could try and build an extended one. It could become a bit of a, like a podcast project. That would be very, very cool, I think. And then we could publish like Yeah, put a, the a list final, up on the website yeah. or something. And, you know, get a few people on to go, well, okay, how, how are we going to build practical things under this framework? <laughs> well, this could be awesome. We could keep revisiting this. Mm. Once again, we start somewhere <laughs> and then in a five-year plan for creating a nice society. Wouldn't it such a and such a and a productive exercise as well? A, a tiny little democracy that would come up with some kind of well, idyllic society. What yeah. I'm already thinking is that in complex problem solving every year, I could make one hour of a tutorial about you could come in and talk about what we built. <laughs> Great idea. Mm. And go, well, this is how you solve a complex problem. <laughs> yeah, well, that society is incredibly uh, complex. We would have to try and do nominal group technique as well, yeah. I think. <laughs> All right, David, that's, uh, I think, enough enough thought, I think, provoking content for the people. Anything? I'd have to say my brain is happily spinning going, that's really cool. I just put 20 things together yeah. and then added another 20, and now I've got a really lovely mess. <laughs> a mess to be solved. All right, well, thank you so much for coming in today, David. Thank you, Tim. listeners you didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music did you i'm here today to say we now have merchandise you can have a blind insights t-shirt you can have a blind insights pin you can have a blind insights hoodie you can have a blind insights coffee cup all you need to do is go to oscast auscast-network.myshopify.com and click on blind insights and you can see all our products Thank you very much to the Ozcast Network for their support and making this happen.